Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. We have uh, one announcement, two announcements this evening. The first is that this Saturday is the uh, ladies' Christmas uh, lunch. It's a luncheon? Prayer luncheon. But it's the Christmas one, so they're going to have lunch, and that's uh, that's all provided. If anybody wants to help, you're supposed to see Fran uh, Spiker. The other announcement is that Beverly Borzak went to be with the Lord on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m., and the memorial service will be this coming Monday at 11 o'clock in the morning here at West Houston Bible Church. And if there are uh, some men who are going to be here uh, during the day, mo- uh, I think most of the deacons have to be somewhere. So if there's a couple of men who are going to be here uh, that morning, please let Doug Daly know so that we can arrange to have uh, a couple of ushers. All right, before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity that we can come before you in prayer, that we can come before your throne of grace because the Lord Jesus Christ has opened the way for us by virtue of his death on the cross as our substitute. In his payment for sin, his objective payment of the sin penalty, he has opened the way that there is direct access to you, something that had never never occurred prior to that in history. Fathers, we continue to study about the various aspects of the atonement as it's pictured in the Old Testament Day of Atonement and then explained in the New Testament. We pray that we might gain a greater appreciation for the uh, remarkable way in which you have designed our so great salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we did not have class on Tuesday night because of the annual pre-trib rapture study group meeting which meets every year around the second week or so of December in Dallas, Texas. And this year it was another uh, good conference. The, the conference has really expanded over the years. When I first began going back in 1998, there were about 40 or 50 in attendance, almost all of whom were, pa- all of whom were pastors and or uh, prophecy teachers or uh, professors in seminaries or Bible colleges. And about in, around 2001 or 2002, uh, Tim LaHaye began to, got the idea that we should open it up to anyone who wanted to come. Those who were the actual members of the pre-trib study group would still uh, sit in the center front with tables and study aids and all of that. And the focus would still be the same in terms of presenting uh, papers and presentations of a scholarly nature, but there were many would be many many people who would be very interested in this kind of work, similar to some of the uh, Bible conferences and prophecy conferences that had begun in England and some in the United States back in the 19th century. There were the Albury conferences in England in the 1830s. Uh, there were some others. There were the Niagara Bible conferences here in the United States. Moody had some conferences, and it was through these prophecy conferences that the teaching about the 
second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the rapture and dispensationalism became disseminated and became so popular in the United States. And it was considered to be such a fresh uh, such a breath of fresh air in terms of prophetic studies because the emphasis was on the imminency of Christ's return, but that there were no prophetic signs related to the rapture, that he could come at any time, but there's no signs. And remember, in the 19th century, you had various groups who would use, set a time or set a date, and they would say, this is when the Lord's going to come back, and then people would quit their jobs and uh, leave their homes and everything else and go sit on a mountaintop waiting for Jesus to come back, and he wouldn't come back. And you still have people who do things like that, like the guy who came out with his book back in 1988 on 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988. And he didn't return, so he wrote a book the next year, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1989. And I understand the guy's still around somewhere, but I don't know that he's continuing to edit his book. But... That was a, the, the idea of the imminency of Christ's return, but that there were, it was a signless event, was just such a refreshing uh, wind of truth that it had a tremendous impact among evangelicals, especially since it came out of a, a fundamentalist background. And the original use of the term fundamentalist related to conservatives who believed in the fundamentals of the Bible that the Bible was the verbal, plenary, inspired, and infallible word of God, a belief in miracles, a belief in the substitutionary atonement of Christ, belief in the virgin birth, a belief in the literal second coming of Christ. And remember, in the context of the 19th century, that's the same time that the Bible is really coming under attack from higher criti- what was called higher criticism, liberal theology, liberal Protestant theology coming out of the uh, European seminaries and universities that were where many churches in America were sending their young men, young men who left America believing in the fundamentals of the faith and returning not believing in the fundamentals of the faith. And that set the stage for the what became known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy that began at the late 19th century and bled over into the 20th century and sort of ended with the the Scopes trial as sort of the death of the fundamentalist. And that, uh, but what was at the core of that were these men, these tremendous Bible teachers like Moody, R.A. Torrey, um, C.I. Schofield, Lewis Berry Chafer, and uh, Blackstone, and many others who really had prophecy at the center of their teaching ministry. And even though many people have wrongly uh, used prophecy or abused it and made it some sort of sensationalistic thing, that is not necessarily true. People misuse the Bible all the time. Just because they misuse the Bible doesn't mean we don't teach the Bible. So uh, misusing prophecy is no reason not to emphasize prophecy. But it's amazed me how down through the century, not the centuries, but down through the last century, how many, many people have been saved by uh, studying or learning or hearing or reading about Bible prophecy. Just I, I think just hundreds of thousands have gotten saved reading Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and tens of thousands, if not 100,000 or more, have gotten saved reading 
the Left Behind series that uh, LaHaye and Jenkins wrote, and many other books of that nature. So it has a tremendous uh, usage, apparently, in God's plan for uh, for evangelism. So this year, we focused on a number of different things. There was a man, a British uh young British scholar, just got his Ph.D. last year, named Dr. Paul Wilkinson, who wrote his dissertation on the rise of Zionism and specifically Christian Zionism in Britain in the 19th century, which is a fascinating read for a scholar, very interesting to study how that grew and developed. And he spoke on the relationship of John Nelson Darby who was the first to truly systematize dispensationalism, the first to clearly articulate the doctrine of the rapture. Not that he's the first. You'll have some people come along and say, well, Darby just invented the rapture. But the rapture precedes Darby. There have been numerous findings in the last 15 or 20 years, especially related to men in the pre-trib rapture study group who've gone back, had the opportunity to go through and and read and translate works that hadn't been translated or discovered before. And there have been several, uh, several documented instances of men going back to the, at least the 5th or 6th century A.D. who clearly understood a, that the church would not go through the tribulation. And so um, Darby just systematized it. But that was a, a great message. And then Roger Oakland who is the author of the book Faith Undone. He's had an apologetic ministry. I first met Roger back uh, back around 89 or 90 when he was doing a lot of work on the New Age movement as well as creation and evolution. And now he's written and done some tremendous studies on the emerging church. And he presented uh, their presentation on apostasy and the emerging church, focusing on how, and this is really interesting, and I'm going to have to do some work on this myself, but how within Roman Catholicism there is the worship of Mary. And if you go to uh, Fatima in, I think, what is, is that in Portugal? Yes. Portugal. That um, Fatima is the daughter of Muhammad. And so there is this connection being made between Mary and the worship of Mary in the Roman Catholic Church and the worship of Fatima, who is the daughter of Muhammad. And this is coming together and is seen as a possible precursor to the uh, religion of the end times as Islam and uh, Roman Catholicism may possibly merge around this, and we've learned more about this over the years, but, uh, and focusing on the Eucharist as the, and the Eucharistic Christ. It's not about Christ. The Roman Catholic Eucharist isn't about Christ. It's about the Eucharist. It's about the bread, and it's idolatry, and how this fits with the worship of Mary, and, um, and this is, this was very, very interesting then. Wayne House gave a paper on Josephus and his writings on the fall of Jerusalem and how that relates to the distortion, distorted uh, interpretations of the preterists. In the afternoon, uh, there was a Kevin Zuber presented on the meaning of the word to meet in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. We had a great banquet on Monday night where Joel Rosenberg, the author of The Last Jihad and The Copper Scroll and The Ezekiel Option, and now Epicenter, which is a nonfiction book uh, detailing what's going on in the Middle East and how this may be a precursor to the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39, the invasion of Gog and Magog into the Middle East, detailing the fact that for the first time in history, 
there's an alliance between Russia in the north and Iran. And there's ne- this has never happened in history, and yet that is what's at the core of the Gog and Magog invasion in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and a number of different things going on there. So we um, had, uh, he was a speaker and did an excellent job. And then um, I guess the next day, John McLean gave a presentation on the chronological and sequential structure of the book of Revelation. And then Dr. John Whitcomb, who is of Whitcomb and Morris fame, writers of the Genesis Flood, he's, he's become sort of the uh, uh, elder statesman of dispensationalism. Now that Dr. Walbert is with the Lord, Dr. Whitcomb's about 84 or 85 now, and he uh, gave an excellent paper on the sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom. Mike Gendron did a paper on Roman Catholicism and Bible prophecy, a lot of which overlapped with what? Uh, Roger Oakland had done and showing this this uh, relationship between uh, the worship of Mary and the worship of Fatima. And then there was another presentation on the kingdom of God and a discussion of current events. Charlie Clough gave a great paper that went over the heads of probably 90% of the people there. Several pastors looked at me afterwards and said, I don't know that I understood anything he said. But it was truly, uh, uh, I mean, he just did a great job, great paper. And then Tommy presented the same paper at the end that he had done here at Chaper last year on the meaning of the earth dwellers in Revelation. So that gives you a little overview, and some of that will be available. The papers will be posted up on the pre, that's pre-trib.org, and those papers will be posted up on that, on that website. And there will be ways for some of you to get the tapes and get the MP3s and the videos and things like that. Okay, let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 3 for just... Uh, few moments before we start to look at some other things. Now, just a little word of insight for all of you who are sitting here. You were here last week. I began to do some introductory work on the meaning of the word kafar and atonement, going back through the key events in the atonement once again, the Day of Atonement, and how that relates to an understanding of Hebrews chapter 9. And then I didn't get as far as uh, looking at Colossians 2, which I wish want to do tonight. Then when Sunday morning came along, because we had the mention of the altar, the horns of the altar in Revelation 9, uh, related to the beginning of the sixth trumpet judgment, I went back through this again, because we had to identify the altar of incense, its location, things like that. And now tonight we're going to look at some things that are going to be re- just repetitive from Sunday morning. And so someone may say, why are we just getting the same thing over and over again? And the reason is, number one, you need to hear the repetition, but also remember that aside from those of you that are here tonight, hundreds of people are going to listen to these lessons, and they're going to study Hebrews from beginning to end, and they won't hear the, what you just heard on, when, on Sunday morning or they'll be going through Revelation from beginning to end, and they won't hear the corollary lessons in Hebrews. So you hear a certain amount of repetition and redundancy from last Thursday to Sunday to this Thursday, but those who hear these series in isolation from the other classes that I'm teaching don't get that level of repetition. So some of this material needs to be in both series. That happens every now and then where I'm teaching something and it seems like there's a confluence 
and uh, the, you know, the force comes together and everything fits and three classes in a row in three different books all talk about the same thing. And so, but that material needs to be there because of the fact that people listen to these series in a different order than we experience them on our Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday uh, experience. So we're looking at this passage in Hebrews 9, and this, the focus here is on the Day of Atonement and how that is fulfilled by what Christ does on the cross and how the picture of the shadow that is seen in the, in the Day of Atonement itself and in the tabernacle foreshadows the work of Christ on the cross, but then as we look at the work of Christ on the cross, the finished, completed work of Christ on the cross, its explanation in the New Testament, primarily in Paul's epistles, then we can go back and see aspects and dimensions and features in the Old Testament uh, festival and in the Day of Atonement and in the worship of the Day of Atonement, and, and it we then get a better understanding, get better focus, better clarity on what happens both in the Day of Atonement and what was accomplished on the cross. So I pointed out last time that, and again on Sunday morning, that the typical way in which we look at the floor plan of the tabernacle is like this, with the golden altar of incense outside the Holy of Holies, outside the veil, and in the holy place. But Hebrews chapter 9 verse 3 states, Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having, that is having in its possession, a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. And we've gone through the material in both the Old Testament and and, uh, the New, showing that it seems that the best explanation is that in the tabernacle itself, the golden altar of incense was inside the Holy of Holies, so it would look like this, because it's, it was designed that the incense on the Day of Atonement would completely cover the Ark of the Covenant so the high priest would not look upon it. And uh, just a point of clarification, throughout uh, the Old Testament, the only priest that's authorized to go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest. Was Aaron is the only one mentioned. There's really little mention of the altar of incense after the Pentateuch. But in the Pentateuch, it, all the instructions are to Aaron, and no one but Aaron uh, ministers at the altar of incense. He's the one who goes in every morning and every evening to change the incense, to ch- bring in the coals so that the altar of incense is burning continuously throughout the day. So you didn't have other priests go in there. But by the time of the New Testament, the second temple, this is where uh, Zechariah is when he, ha- when he is ministering at the altar. He's the father of John the Baptist. When the angel appears to him and announces that he and Elizabeth are going to have a child, that will be John the Baptist and what his ministry will be. And he just doesn't believe it, so the angel uh, strikes him speechless, and he is unable to speak until the child is born. And so because of that, uh, people have also brought that question up as to, well, he's ministering at the altar, so priests were ministering at the altar. But it's clear from the testimony of others, such as uh, Josephus and Philo and others, that during the uh, during the Second Temple period, the altar was outside in the holy place, and actually, 
there's nothing in the Holy of Holies. And I think that there was a transition that occurred, and because there was no Ark of the Covenant during the Second Temple period, then that room was just basically uh, was not used at all. There was no need for the altar to fill that room with smoke because there was nothing to look at or to obscure. And so the so that other priests could minister at the golden altar for various uh, uh, logistical reasons, they moved it out into the holy place. But we have clear evidence of that, and unfortunately I think that a lot of people look at Second Temple testimony, eyewitness testimony, and then say, well, that must be exactly the way it was in the first temple and in the tabernacle when we know that there were minor variations of this type between each of these and each of these stages. So we looked at those verses, and then if you go on down to uh, verse 5, or verse 6, we read, Now when these things had been thus prepared, that is, when everything was made ready for the Day of Atonement, when, now when these things had been done, or excuse me, when the tabernacle had been completed and finished, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. That was the role of the priests. And what the writer of Hebrews is simply saying here is that the priests went in continuously into the outer room, into the holy place, they are changing the table of showbread. They're lighting the oil for the menorah. But they do not go past the veil. They do not go into the Holy of Holies. And then in verse 7 we read, But into the second part, the high priest, the high priest went alone once a year. That's the King James Version translation. Your New American Standard, I think, is a little more clear the uh, the uh, alone there modify modifies high priests and shouldn't be translated alone but should be translated only only the high priest no other priest goes in there only the high priest went in once a year and look at the whole thing once a year then you have uh, uh, explanatory clause, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin. So he goes in once a year to offer for the people's sin. It's not that he only went in once a year, but that he only went in once a year for that purpose. You have to look at the whole sentence structure and not just stop it uh, halfway through and say, oh, well, that means he only went in on the Day of Atonement because he would um, take care of the uh, incense on a regular basis, but again, it was only the high priest who is functioning in that, not the not the priest. And then verse eight, we read the Holy Spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all, that is the holy of holies, was not yet made manifest. It's not made clear yet, while the first t- temple was still standing. In other words, they're looking at the shadow. And the shadow means that they don't have a crisp, clear understanding of what all this is representing. Sometimes we think that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament believers had a very clear understanding that that lamb meant that they understood that that God was going to send a Messiah and the Messiah was going to die for their sins. And they didn't understand it that clearly. They understood that God was going to provide salvation for them, but the mechanics and the details were not that clear. Remember, it's not until Isaiah 53 that we have a 
uh, a clear explanation in Revelation of uh, that he the, he will be made sin and he will die in our place. So that becomes a little more clear. But this is much earlier than that. So it's still more obscure to them. Their trust is really in Christ, in God, and that He will provide a solution. But the the details of that solution are not real clear. If you had gone up to them and said, "See, this lamb represents the Savior, and just like the the save, just like the lamb is killed, the Savior is going to be killed." and is going to be crucified, they, they would go, huh? And, and to support that, just look at the disciples. When, the, when Jesus shows up and he tells the disciples again and again and again that it's necessary for him to die for the sins of his people, it just doesn't get past their ears. They, they can't comprehend it. It doesn't make sense to them. So there's, there, it's, And that's why we talk about the fact that the Old Testament is a shadow of the reality. And I used the illustration on Sunday that if I were to get a couple of you up here and we were to turn the lights off and have a bright spotlight on you to cast a shadow up on the wall, there are certain things that we would be able to tell about the person casting the shadow. We could probably tell if they were male or female. We could perhaps uh, judge by comparison and get some idea of their size or their height or their proportion uh, we might get some idea of uh, their hair and what their hair looked like, but with that silhouette, uh, we would not be real clear on a lot of details as it would be when the lights come on and we see directly the person who's casting the shadow. And that is what's true of this. Again and again, we have this imagery that this is just a shadow based on the ultimate reality of the uh, temple in heaven the dwelling place of God in heaven. And we've seen in our study of Revelation that there's an altar in heaven, there's the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, the altar of incense, that is, and the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. No other furniture is mentioned in heaven in these visions of the heavenly temple, the also called the heavenly tabernacle, emphasizing that dwelling place of God. So the Holy Spirit is teaching through these shadow images in the Old Testament And in the progress of Revelation, uh, little bits are added down through the centuries to fill out the picture so that by the time God sends the second person of the Trinity on his mission as Savior, then they should have enough information to be able to identify him. That's what Paul refers to in Galatians 4.4 when he says, In the fullness of time the Savior appeared. So then we look at verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect. And that word is is teleos. It doesn't have flaw. It's not the idea of flawless, but it has the idea of complete in regard to the conscience concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. To understand verse 9, you have to understand verse 10. Verse 10 is focusing on the issue in the tabernacle, on the Day of Atonement. It has to do with um, the sacrifices that are being brought to deal with the the unintentional sins that are committed by by the Jews, and by ritual uncleanness. So that's what he's summarizing in verse 10. If they ate the wrong food or drank, or they didn't uh, go through the right ritual washings, or uh, uh, or there were uh, 
unwitting sins, involuntary sins, then there were these sacrifices that would cleanse them ritually so that they could then come in and participate in the ritual. And that all of these these rituals were just symbols of an ultimate spiritual reality. And I find this is something that has confused a lot of people. I mentioned when when we were pre-trib the last two or three days that uh, Dr. Whitcomb gave a paper on the sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. And I find that this still confuses a lot of people. And I was talking to some pastors who were there for the first time uh, this time, and they just had never really understood that, that there were going to be literal animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. And so because it's thought that, well, you look at Hebrews, and Hebrews says that, that Christ is the is the completion of that. All those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin, so why are we going to have animal sacrifices in the future if Christ has, has paid the once-for-all sacrifices, which is what we cover here in chapter 9? And the reason is that the sacrifices never had to do with the, the real spiritual relationship between the Old Testament Jew and God. They had to do with a ceremonial and ritual relationship with God. And so we have to draw this distinction between the ceremonial and the ritual coming into God's presence and the real spiritual coming into God's presence. Let me illustrate. David is out with the sheep. David sins. Does David have to run to Jerusalem and offer a sin offering before he can confess his sin and get back in fellowship. If he has to always bring a sin offering to get back in fellowship in terms of his real relationship with God, then before he gets back to the sheepfold in Bethlehem, he sinned again and he's got to turn around and run back to Jerusalem. And he gets there, has another sin offering, and then he turns around and he's almost out of Jerusalem and he sins again. He has to turn around and run back and he's just never going to get home or he's going to be winning the Olympics before long because he's just running back and forth. And you know how often we have to confess the same sin sometimes. So there's this distinction. David could be out with the sheep, sin confess his sin, he's back in fellowship with God. That has to do with his real relationship with God. But the next time he goes to Jerusalem, to the temple, there has to be a ceremonial cleansing of that sin so that he can participate in the ceremonial ritual in the tabernacle. That is a physical picture of what happens in the spiritual realm. But these have to be kept separate. Now, the purpose for the physical rituals and the, and the sacrifices was to provide ritual cleansing for, participate, for participation in the rituals, in, in the tabernacle, the feast days, so that when uh, sinful men, sinful priests come before a holy God, there, there had to be this visible ceremonial sacrifice depicting an ultimate spiritual reality. Well, in the future temple that is in Jerusalem, Ezekiel clearly defines a ritual sacrificial system, but it's not Levitical. 
there are differences between the uh, the, the, the ritual that's going to be in the millennial temple and the ritual that was in the Mosaic law. This really bothered the uh, rabbis back in the intertestamental period. And, and when it came to uh, deciding whether or not the book of Ezekiel should be included in the canon, they just felt like there were these contradictions because they thought that Ezekiel was really talking about the uh, the Levitical tabernacle, the Levitical temple, and the Levitical priestly ministry and sacrifices, and not something prophetic. And so one of the uh, one of the rabbis, it said, burned through a hundred barrels of oil. He had one lamp. You don't put a whole lot of oil in that lamp. So to burn through a hundred barrels of oil means you're you're locked away in that room by yourself for an awfully long time. And after you've been in there in isolation for five or six years burning through a hundred barrels of oil, you can just about make any contradictory statements say the same thing. And so he worked out this uh, very fantastic system of uh, correlation between Ezekiel's sacrificial system and the Levitical system that satisfied the rabbis and they accepted Ezekiel into the canon. But they had a primary a hermeneutical or interpretive malfunction, and that is they didn't recognize that, that uh, Ezekiel was talking about this future temple that would come about and that there would indeed be this change of sac- sacrifices because the, uh, the ultimate atoning work of Christ on the cross was completed, but these other sacrifices had to do with the ritual cleansing of the Zadokite priests serving in the millennial temple. Here you have uh, these fallen Jewish priests have sin natures. They're going to have infractions of the law uh, and, and sin when they're in the, serving in the temple, and they have to be ritually cleansed to carry out the rituals to fulfill the same picture that we have in the Old Testament temple. So um, anyway, as, as Dr. Whitcomb was, was presenting this paper and going through this, he also uh, went through some of the same material on atonement that I had uh, I presented and had come to the same conclusion that the idea of kafar for atonement is the word for uh, really that emphasizes more the idea of cleansing than it does the idea of covering. So just to review, we, I pointed out that the English word atonement that we have in our Bible and the Old Testament doesn't occur in the New Testament, was uh, coined in English from the phrase at one moment, which is a word that emphasizes reconciliation, bringing two disagreeing parties together as one. So that emphasized reconciliation. If you look the word atonement up, though, in any English dictionary, what you will also discover is that it is often defined with the word redemption because there is a blood sacrifice that's made. Uh, at, there's the bull that is sacrificed, the goat that is sacrificed, and their blood is brought in as a sin offering and put on the uh, mercy seat and then sprinkled in front of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And it is that blood sacrifice, and it's the blood that pictures the payment price for sin, and that is redemption. The word redemption means to pay a price. That's the core meaning in the word redemption. But payment of a price is a very different idea than bringing people who are at odds with one another together in reconciliation. So they're not synonyms, but they speak of different facets of the work of Christ on the cross. 
And then there's the, the whole imagery of the mercy seat itself, the kaphoret it was called in the Hebrew, which is uh, hilasterion in the Greek, called the mercy seat. And this depicts the satisfaction of God's righteousness and justice, that before God can be truly reconciled to man, his righteous standard has to be satisfied and his justice has to be appeased. And if you look up the word uh, kafar in many dictionaries or even atonement in English, it will also use this word to appease justice or to appease someone's wrath. And so that brings in this idea of propitiation. That is also vital to understanding uh, all of Christ's work on the cross. And then another word that is used relates to the fourth point, that because God is propitiated and the penalty is paid, the debt of sin is then canceled. And it's that idea of canceling or wiping out the debt just completely removing, eradicating, blotting out the debt as if it uh, never existed, that we have the idea of forgiveness. And also another word that's used in theology is expiation. Now, forgiveness is a very important term, and that should be Colossians 2, 12 to 14, down there under point four, not Colossians 1, 12 to 14. That's a uh, Colossians 1.14 is an important passage, and let's go ahead and turn there right now to Colossians chapter 1. But the key, key uh, passage is, is in the second chapter of Colossians. So we turn over to Colossians, and we see that in the f- first part of Colossians, in Colossians 1, starting in about verse... Uh, We'll start at verse 13, and then going down to verse 23, we have an explanation to some degree of the work of Christ on the cross as it correlates to the person of Christ on the cross. And as we go through this, I want you to see the connection between between these words in this diagram. I've I've taken a, a, a pentagon here that represents the concept of atonement. And we have these five different facets to that word that we see in various dictionaries and explanations. We have redemption, expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and forgiveness. And as you approach the cross, you can approach the cross from different directions. There are some that come and the concept of redemption, that Christ paid the price for you, is what the Holy Spirit uses to get their attention and to bring them to an understanding of who Jesus is and what he did and to believe on him. Others come from the direction of forgiveness or expiation and the fact that they are forgiven of sin, that that the that there is a guilt, there's a problem with their conscience. They have this inherent understanding of their guilt before God and and the sin in their life. And so forgiveness is that doctrine which the Lord uses to bring them uh, to salvation. Others, it may be uh, having to do with justification, propitiation. Uh, It was in the Reformation period was a time when Justice and law was a very dominant idea in society, and so the doctrine of justification by faith alone was a was a very strong doctrine that 
uh, resonated with people, whereas we live in a very subjective age today that emphasizes relationship and relational dynamics. And so reconciliation becomes a, uh, a concept that resonates a lot with people, uh, people in our culture. But the word atonement that God uses in the Old Testament, or the word kafar, rather, that he uses in the Old Testament, really is such a broad term as, that it includes all of these different facets as it's used to explain the dynamics, uh, the dynamics of Christ's work on the cross. Well, if we go to Colossians 1.13, look at Colossians 1.13, we read, He, in verse 13, who's God the Father, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So Paul is writing this from the perspective of one believer to another. He's not talking about what the cross has done for unbelievers. He's talking to believers about what God has done for believers, the dynamics of salvation and how that should change the way you're thinking and the way you're operating. And he's writing to a group of believers who are still being influenced by the human viewpoint concepts of the Greek culture uh, the Greek culture around them. So he's starting with this, this doctrine of the, of the cross to help them understand that, that this isn't just uh, abstract theology, but this is gonna, should change the way you live. You shouldn't continue to live like the, the unbelievers in the, culture, in the culture around you. So he starts off with this interconnection between what God did through the cross and why that means that Christ, who did it, must be, uh, must be fully God. So he writes, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have a present tense reality as believers, it's not that some of this may not apply to unbelievers, but he's only talking about what we have in Christ as believers. We have redemption through his blood. And I want you to pay attention as you read through some of these passages what all gets accomplished through his blood. And we've studied the doctrine of the blood of Christ before, and we understand that this isn't talking about his physical blood, all the components of the red blood cells and white blood cells and the plasma and the hemoglobin and all of that. It's talking, the term blood is used as a metaphor for death because in the scripture it is the shedding of blood that is a picture of death and blood. the life is in the blood. So the, uh, that's, that's the metaphor, that's the picture. So it's through his blood, or you can just do a simple word definition to make it more literal, through his death. But what do we have? We have redemption. It is his death on the cross that paid a price. And that's that concept of redemption. It purchased something. But then we have an, a phrase that follows it, that for all intents and purposes, in the English as well as in the Greek, appears to be an appositional phrase, the forgiveness of sins. Now, if I were to poll the congregation to give me a definition of forgiveness, the one that will most likely bubble up is one that is similar to what's in Webster's Dictionary, Oxford uh, English Dictionary, and that is a view of forgiveness that is subjective in orientation. We think of forgiving someone as not harboring ill feelings towards them, not uh, uh, not being bitter or angry or uh, 
are harboring hatred towards someone. That's what we mean by forgiveness, and that's not what's meant here. That's why I think it's confusing, because if you think of forgiveness as not harboring anger or hate towards somebody, how can that be synonymous with paying a price? See, it doesn't fit. You have Redemption is the forgiveness of sin. So somehow the idea of, of forgiveness is equivalent to the idea of redemption or purchasing something or paying the price for something. So we have to bring that together. And, that's, and the problem that we have is we have a false understanding of what forgiveness is. When you get into the, what we'll look at in just a minute, Colossians 2, we see that forgiveness is defined as canceling a debt or paying the debt. That's what redemption is. It's paying the price. So that's the idea that's emphasized there in, in forgiveness. It's canceling a debt, whereas a sin is viewed as incurring a debt against God. It is that debt that God wipes away. Nothing is owed God. You know, in, in terms of personal relationships, sometimes when we're offended or somebody hurts us or insults us or treats us ill, we think they owe us something. Well, forgiveness is wiping out that sense of them owing us something. They don't owe us anything. There's no sense of repayment that, that has to be made. The debt is wiped out. That's the idea of forgiveness. Well, in verses, in verse 14 here, we see that the foundation of these salvation doctrines is on redemption and forgiveness. Now, verses 15 uh, down through 20, down through 19, 15 through 19, focus on the person of Christ, that in order to do what was done on the cross, paying the price so that sins could be wiped out, he had to be God. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, verse 15. He's the creator who carried out creation, verse 16. Uh, he's eternal, verse 17, is before all things, in him all things consist. Verse 18, he's the head of the body. Verse 19, in him all the fullness of deity dwells. He's fully God. He has to be fully God in order to do what he did on the cross. Now, Paul comes back to the subject of what Christ did in verse 19. He writes, and by him to reconcile. By Christ, who does the reconciling? God does the reconciling by him to reconcile all things to himself. Uh, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Having made peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this is very important to understand this, that as we look at this idea of making peace, it's related to reconciliation in verse uh, both in verse 20 and in verse 21. And so the grammar here is important. The grammar here is very important. It talks about the fact that something happened. I got a page of notes missing. Oh well. What we have here is a statement that by him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace, the participle there precedes the action of that infinitive to reconcile. And the infinitive to reconcile is uh, 
a present infinitive which is used as your main verb. And so that the action of having made peace precedes the action of reconciliation. So peace comes before reconciliation. We're reconciled by making peace. Look at other passages related to reconciliation. Just hold your place here and let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. Who performs the action of reconciliation there? God does. God reconciled us to himself. It's a complete action through Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say, and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what we're announcing when we evangelize, that God has reconciled us to himself. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When did that occur? Does that occur at the cross, or does that occur when an individual understands the gospel and believes in Christ? When was God reconciling the world to himself? Is this objective or subjective? This is objective. It occurred when Christ was on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, God is reconciling the world to himself so that the position of the world in relation to God changes because Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. It's not talking about what happens when somebody trusts in Christ as their Savior and that relationship changes experientially. It's talking about the objective payment that occurs on the cross that reconciles the world to God so that that position of the world, the relation of the world to God, is not the same after the cross as it was before the cross. So God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So we announce this reconciliation to man so that they can then trust in Christ as their Savior. Okay, so that sees reconciliation then in relation to the whole world and in relation to what happened at the cross, not what happens when somebody... Uh, believes in Christ. Now let's go back to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 again, as we wrap up there. That peace is made at the time of Christ's death on the cross. That's what Paul is saying here. Having made, he's, he's able to reconcile all things to himself. That includes everything having made peace, because he's already made peace first through the blood of the cross, the death of Christ on the cross. So that's when peace is made. And then verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. What he's talking about there is the same thing he talks about in the parallel passage in in Ephesians 2, verse 11 and following, is that because Gentiles were excluded from the law, Now that the law has been completed, Christ has died on the cross, then Gentiles and Jew alike are reconciled, and there's no, the the, the law is not the issue anymore, and Jew and Gentile can both come to the cross on an equal footing. There's not a difference there. Now let's turn over to Colossians chapter 2. 
Let's skip down to verse 13. Verse 13, you will recognize the wording here is parallel to what Paul says in, in Ephesians 2.1. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul says, Though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and then he goes on to list some other dynamics related to carnality, and then finally when he gets down to Ephesians 2, verse 4, he says, But God... Uh, God has made has uh, has made you alive together with Him, has raised you with Him, and seated you with Him in the heavenly places. And He's saying the same thing here, but He says it a little differently, adds some different dynamics. He says, "And you, being dead in your trespasses and sins." So it said, "No." See, it's a little different. Why? He's got a different audience. He says, "You being dead in your trespasses." And the uncircumcision of your flesh. Oh, does that mean it's a sin to be uncircumcised? No. What's he talking about? You're a Gentile. You're not part of the, you're not Jewish and you're not under the law. You are a Gentile who formerly were excluded, but now you are reconciled and brought near because of what Christ did on the cross. Does that mean you're saved? No. But it means that that position, that relationship that God had with Gentiles in the Old Testament is different now because of what Christ did on the cross. You being dead in your trespasses. Now, we have to pay attention to the verbiage here a little bit and the Greek grammar. Uh, It's very important to understand this. The word being dead there is actually a participle. It is a present participle. And the main verb is comes after that introductory clause, he has made us alive together. That Just underline that in your Bible. He has made us alive together with him. That's your main clause. That's what he's talking about. That's your finite verb. That's your main thought. He has made us alive together with him. And that is a an aorist tense verb, which means he's looking at it in terms of past action, what, what has happened in the past. Because he's talking to them, they're believers, and they were regenerated in the past. Now he brings in regeneration there, but that is a that's an objective. I mean, excuse me, that's a subjective change that occurs when we trust Christ as Savior. He made us together with Him, although you were in a state of being in your trespasses and sins. Now the interesting thing there is that. That participle that's translated being is a present participle, but it's connected to an aorist tense verb. Now, I know I'm getting into some technical grammar here, but in Greek, what that means is that the, it's not, the tenses of participles don't have anything to do with time. The participle, uh, the tense of the participle has to do with its relationship to the action of the main verb. So a present tense participle means the action of the participle it's taking place at the same time as the action of the verb. So the action in the past of the verb was you were made alive. And at that time of being made alive, your status was you were spiritually dead. So he's saying oh, that's why, even though it's a present tense participle, it's translated as a past tense uh, participle. Though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase there? Having, 
He made you alive, having forgiven you. When did he forgive you of all trespasses? Did that happen when you trusted Christ as your Savior? Or did that happen at the cross? See, if we look back at Colossians 1, 13 and 14, redemption happened at the cross. Redemption is equivalent to forgiveness. And that happened at the cross. Forgiveness occurred at the cross. It didn't occur when you trusted Christ as your Savior. When were your sins forgiven? When were they wiped out? When were they canceled? Not when you trusted Christ as your Savior, but when Christ died on the cross in roughly 33 A.D. He makes you alive together with him by having forgiven you all sin. So sometime in the indefinite past, before he made you alive, he forgave you. And this idea there is that the forgiveness participle, there is a participle of means that explains how he was able or the basis for why he was able to make you alive together with him uh, by having uh, by having or by forgiving you all trespasses. And then you have another participle at the beginning of verse 14 that's translated having wiped out or having canceled or having obliterated. The handwriting of requirements, literally it's the certificate of indebtedness. So we have a debt against God, but it's wiped out. It's forgiven. It's, but when did that happen? Well, that participle has a time frame to it, so it should be translated, He made us alive together by forgiving all trespasses when... That's a temporal idea. When he wiped out or when he canceled the certificate of debt that was against us, which was contrary to us. Now, when did he do that? Well, he explains it in the next clause. And he has taken it, that is that certificate of debt, he has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. And that last phrase removes all doubt as to when the forgiveness occurred. The forgiveness is the cancellation of the debt, and it says that 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 certificate of debt was nailed to the cross. It didn't get nailed to the cross when you and I trusted Christ as our Savior. It got nailed to the cross when Christ was on the cross. And what this passage is telling us is that the sins are wiped out, blotted out, obliterated. They're viewed as a debt against God. And nearly every commentator you read will say this is referring to the Mosaic Law. Well, weren't people sinning before the law? Sure they were. It is viewing sin, man's sin, his, his, his deficit because of sin is viewed as a debt against God that is wiped out, obliterated at the cross. So that man can't pay that penalty, can't pay that. It, that aspect, the objective legal penalty, is paid for by Christ on the cross so that God's relationship to man is changed. That's, the, that's what the, the whole focus of the Day of Atonement is, is depicting that. So that, that as far as the Jews are concerned, all the debt of sin that piled up from one Yom Kippur to the next is now dealt with, paid for, God's justice is satisfied, by the application of the blood on the mercy seat, and then when the high priest would come out 
and put his hand on the scapegoat and identify the sins of the people, confess them, and they were identified with that scapegoat, that scapegoat is then taken far, far away into the wilderness and let go so it can never find its way back. And that depicts the fact that no matter what we've done, it is not the issue. It's been paid for. Now, what's important about that, at least theologically, is it helps us to understand the extent of the atonement and answers that problem. But it deals. The, the issue is either Christ truly, really, genuinely paid the penalty for every person's sin, so that the, the sin of everyone is that 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 sinful debt is canceled. But it's the application of that that must happen to change our experience, because we're still born spiritually dead. That certificate of debt is not the issue anymore, because that was nailed to the cross. But we're still born under condemnation. We're born spiritually dead. We're born without righteousness. And until that changes, until that changes, a person can't have a relationship with God and they'll remain condemned. So that's, that's what happens in salvation is that we recognize that Christ paid the penalty in full and it was nailed to the cross. That's the picture of atonement. Now, next time, I want to come back, address the issue of the extent of the atonement a little bit in terms of the reality of why this is paid objectively in full. It's paid in full. That's what Christ says at the end, uh, to tell us it's paid in full. Nothing can be added to that payment. But if we don't accept the payment, then there's no internal change in us that must transpire in order to have eternal life, and in order to be with God in heaven. So we'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to have our thinking challenged and expand and stretch it a little bit as we come to understand the realities of the cross and all these different facets of redemption and expiation, forgiveness, and how that relates to our own salvation and relationship to you and how you changed the relationship of the world to yourself by Christ's death on the cross, and that that made it possible, salvation of fallen men. We thank you for our salvation and all that it means to us and for all that your word means to us, and we pray that we might not treat this lightly as we live out our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.